We're going um, gonna to read the passage from Acts chapter 2, which we've been reading over the last few weeks. It's going to come up on the screen behind me. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. This is what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This morning we're going to look at the theme of togetherness, devoted to togetherness. Recently, Joe and I went to a Southampton Newcastle game. And uh, some of the Newcastle fans. A large number of Newcastle fans had traveled the hundreds of miles to St. Mary's Stadium to see their side lose 4 0. It was not a good day out for them. But they're renowned for being incredibly passionate fans. They're known in football circles as the Toon Army. They love Newcastle United. Yet uh, Joe and I were sitting quite close to where the Newcastle fans were. And watching them on a closer hand, it was clear that despite their passion for Newcastle United, there were huge tensions amongst them. Quite a number of the Newcastle fans spent most of the game chanting about how useless their manager, Alan Pardew, was and that they wanted him to go. Spent most of the game. That was the focus of what they were doing. Others got really cross with them and uh, it it broke out into a fight uh, amongst them. And uh, the police and stewards had to get involved. Others spent uh, most of the game, the ones that were close to the Southampton fans, spent most of the game threatening the Southampton fans uh, and actually taunting them and, uh, and really not watching the game. Others uh, got so fed up with their team's performance, they walked out before the end and set out on the long journey home. There was an appearance of togetherness, but the reality was very different. Over the centuries, the church has been similar. Great declarations of togetherness sport by infighting, bad attitudes towards one another, division over things that are simply irrelevant, and harsh criticism of those we should be supporting. Togetherness, as the old adage says, with friends like that, who needs enemies? How sad is that? The book of Acts shows us how the church should work. All the believers were together and had everything in common. It's what we read. A startling statement. Shocking statement. If you're like me, you wonder if Luke just exaggerated just a little bit. Just got a bit carried away with the rhetoric. And yet we read a little bit later in chapter 4, all the believers were one in heart and mind. See, the truth is, our cynicism 
is unfounded. God holds this mirror of the early church in front of us for one reason alone. Are we like that? Through the book of Acts, we see the early church warts and all. We see it in all the good and the bad. doesn't hold anything back. And yet in the midst of all that went on, we see a remarkable togetherness. What caused such commitment? What caused such commitment to one another? What was it? This morning, we're going to unpack what glued them together and how we can live like that. A couple of weeks ago, John spoke about being devoted to the fellowship. And in a few weeks' time, Rob is going to be speaking on being devoted to sharing and caring. Surely, there's nothing else to say. It's far from the truth. You see, togetherness is the standout characteristic of the early church. Numerous times we read the believers were together. Sometimes it was in prayer. Sometimes it was to break bread. Sometimes we're told it was to share news. But it was always in worship of God. They were always meeting together. Sometimes they did it publicly at the temple. Solomon's colonnade, we're told, in chapter 5. And sometimes they were meeting in each other's homes. There was a remarkable unity And I want to show you this morning the two things that I believe that were at the root of their togetherness. The first is the fear of God. And the second thing is the joy of God. Fear and joy? How can they go together? I mean, we think of strawberries and cream. We think of rhubarb and custard. We... But we don't think of chocolate and Marmite. It's not a good combination. We don't, think of, we don't think of Brussels sprouts and parsnip soup at Christmas, do we? If you do, then there's something wrong with you and um, you really do need help. Fear and joy. Can they really go together? Someone, a guy called Jerry Bridges, a number of years ago, wrote a book called The Joy of Fearing God. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3, it prophetically talks about Jesus and about Jesus coming to earth. And it says of Jesus that he will delight, he will find joy in the fear of the Lord. And if Jesus, our great role model, found joy in the fear of God, so can we. And so this morning, I want to unpack those two things, and I want to help us understand what it is to be filled with these things. So the first thing, then, is the church was filled with awe. Now, we've all been fearful of things. Some of us are fearful of heights. Some of us, it's spiders. Some of us, it's flying. I remember my dad had a terrible fear of flying. We've all been frightened on occasions. Maybe uh, you've been driving and you've been coming to a junk and you've just, your mind has switched off. You're, you're engaged with your eyes, but your brain is somewhere else. And you come to a junction and suddenly the car in front of you stops quickly. And, you, and, and, and then afterwards you brake and you just avoid hitting the car in front. And afterwards you're shaking. You're thinking, oh, that was so close. 
fear comes on you. That was so close. I could have gone into the back of that car. And yet, that sort of fear is very different from the awe that we read about in Acts chapter 2. You see, the dictionary defines awe as reverential fear or wonder. Depending on the circumstances, it can mean fear or dread, respect or reverence, admiration, wonder or amazement. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that when men and women feel just a touch of the power of God, they are filled with fear. We can be awestruck by the greatness of God. We were worshipping a great God this morning. Tom was encouraging us to think of the heavens and how awesome God is. That should fill us with a sense of reverential wonder and amazement. The God who made the heavens and the earth is interested in us. We can be overwhelmed by the holiness of God. There are moments when we stand in God's presence and we feel overwhelmed by his holiness. He is a consuming fire. How can we stand in his presence? Only through Christ. The Bible gives about 150 reverence, uh, references to the fear of God. In Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Stand in awe of what God does. We hear Marie's testimony of a life that was shattered, broken. She didn't know what was going to happen, and yet God, bit by bit over these months, has put it back together. Does that not make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up? God can do anything. You see, we live in a world where people don't fear God, and many don't believe in him. You remember in the book of Exodus when Moses is challenging Pharaoh and saying, let, the, the Lord says, let my people go, and Pharaoh says, who's the Lord? People don't even believe in God. There is a lack of fear of God, lack of acknowledgement. Paul says the root of the problem in the world today is that there is no fear of God before the eyes of men and women. Romans chapter 3. You see, sin, what the Bible calls sin, our rebellion against God, our turning against God, our living for ourselves, flows out of a complete disregard for God. Right from the very beginning, the breakdown in relationship between God and man in the Garden of Eden, caused by our rebellion, brought human fear, not godly awe. In the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, there's a conversation, C.S. Lewis's book, there's a conversation between Mr. Beaver and Lucy about Aslan. And you know the book is like an allegory of the, uh, of the Christian faith. And Aslan stands as a reminder of Jesus Christ. And Lucy Aslan is never seen as and never met him. And she asks about him and asks what he's like. And she asks this question about this great line. And she says, is he safe? Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. That's the difference between human fear and all. We stand in fear of God, but we know this great, awesome God is good, and he loves us. I want to 
just pick up three incidents from the, the New Testament, and uh, which will help us understand uh, how we should respond to the fear of God. The first involves a guy called Peter, uh, one of the uh, 12 apostles, and he encounters Jesus in Luke uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. Now, Peter's a fisherman. He's been out fishing all night. He's, it's in the morning. He's cleaning his nets, and uh, he's beside the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus comes along, and a huge crowd of people has gathered to listen to Jesus. And so what Jesus says is, she says, he says to Peter, Peter, can I use your boat? Push your boat out into the water a bit. And uh, Jesus starts to teach the people, speak to the people. And then he says to Peter, after he's done that, he says, Peter, he says, I want you to push uh, your boat out into deeper water, and I want you to throw your net over the side again for a catch of fish. Now, Peter knows the Sea of Galilee. He's a fisherman. He's been brought up fishing around the Sea of Galilee. He knows that there's not going to be a catch. He's fished all night and caught nothing. But because Jesus asked him to do it, he does it. And so you can imagine his sort of resignation as he throws the nets over. I've just cleaned these nets. Here we go again. Throws the nets over. And he starts to put, and oh my word, there is a catch, a massive catch of fish. A massive catch of fish. So much so he has to get others to come and help him pull this net in. In that moment, Peter is struck by awe. He suddenly knows he's in the presence of not just a good teacher. He's in the presence of one who knows where fish swim. He's in the presence of God. And he falls down on his knees and says, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. There are moments when the awesome presence of God should cause us to fall on our knees in awe of God. This week, someone uh, was praying, and they had a a, a little prophetic word for me. And uh, it meant absolutely nothing to me. It, it It seemed to them utterly odd and crazy. And yet God had spoken to me twice in previous weeks. And uh, I'd read this passage, and I'd felt God speak to me from it. And a couple of weeks later, I'd, felt, uh, I'd read another passage, and it said exactly the same thing. Totally, I wasn't expecting it. And I felt God say to me, did you listen to me? Did you listen to what I said to you a couple of weeks ago? And this person gave this prophetic word, meant nothing to them. And it was so accurate. It was so exactly the same. It made the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. God is speaking. Wow. Have you ever felt a sense of awe like that, that you're standing in the presence of one who knows you inside out? God who's for you and loves you, the God who created the heavens and the earth. The second story I want to tell you is one from Acts chapter 5. You know, God is awesome, we're told in the Psalms. Hebrews tells us that we should worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
And there's a story in Acts chapter 5 about a couple in the early church, Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, basically what had happened was they have uh, a piece of land. And lots of people are selling land and giving the money to the leaders of the church to care for those in need. And so they sell a piece of land and they give money to uh, the leaders of the church. But they keep back a bit of the money. They're fully entitled to do that. It's their land. They can do what they want to do with it. But they tell everyone that they've given all the money. And God calls them on it. And they get challenged. And in the moment of being challenged, they've tried to deceive people and tried to look good, wanted to enjoy the money while actually taking the credit. The presence of God is heavy in the church. God is doing remarkable things. And Peter challenges Ananias and he says, did he sell the land for such and such? And Ananias, in the moment, he just keeps on lying. And Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit and he drops down dead. Same happens to his wife. She does the same. And we read that the fear of God falls on everyone who hears about it. God is not to be toyed with. God is holy and awesome. We should live in the fear of God, knowing that God sees and knows our motives of our hearts. And it shouldn't be a fear, like a a fear of a despot. This is a loving, holy God who has provided a way for us to be stand rightly before him. Jesus Christ, it says in 1 John 1, is the the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's the one that's dealt with our sin before God. He died on the cross carrying our sin that we might be free. So God's provided a way out and he wants us to live before him in reverence and awe. It's a challenge to us. The fear of God should provoke us to live in a different way. In 1 John 1, it talks about us walking in the light because he's in the light. And so when that should cause us to live a different way, to live in a way that pleases him, not because we're trying to earn anything, but because we love him and we revere him and we honor him. He is the great king. We want to do our best for him. The third story is a very different one. It's from Acts chapter 15. And uh, it's easy to think that the early church had it all buttoned up, that they were perfect. And we read about two guys, Paul and Barnabas. And uh, they've been working together. The Holy Spirit has uh, sent them off on a trip. They've come back from their trip. They're back in the church. And they start talking about going and revisiting the churches they've been to. And uh, they have, we're told in Acts chapter 15, they had a sharp disagreement. These two guys have a sharp disagreement. It is so sharp that they stop working together and they go in different directions. And you look at it and you think, how can that be? How can that be? And yet it seems that God blesses both of them. God blesses Barnabas. He goes off with John Mark. John Mark is the reason for the sharp disagreement. John Mark is, uh, had been with them on their previous trip and he'd left halfway through. And Barnabas says, 
He's a good guy. He can still make it. I want us to take him. And Paul says, no, I don't think it's appropriate to take him on this trip again. He left us last time. I, I want people with us who are going to stay with us. And they, they have this sharp disagreement. And Barnabas, in the end, says, well, I'm going to go off with John Mark. And he leaves and goes with John Mark. And God blesses them. And at the end uh, of Paul's life, Paul talks really warmly of John Mark. Paul goes off and it says he goes commended by the leaders of the church and God blesses him as he go back, goes back with a guy called Silas and visits the churches. We see the early church warts and all. And yet in it, what I want you to know of this, there was a fear of God. And so even though they disagree, Paul speaks so well of Barnabas. If you read in 1 Corinthians, he mentions him in dispatches in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He mentions him. This is a guy he honored. He speaks well of him. And it's literally a little season after they've uh, parted. You see, it's not about the fear of God. is isn't about we've got to agree like robots with one another. But it's about we, how we handle stuff together. The New Testament is very, very real. It says this in Isaiah 33, verse 6. He, God, will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. The second thing we see in the early church, we see they were full of fear, but the fear of God, but they were also full of gladness. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. You know, the world's view of the church is pretty negative. For most, for most people, we are sadly known for, more for what we're against than what we're for. Someone once said that we are people who know just enough to make them miserable. Is that true? Is that true of you? The Christian life is supposed to be full of joy because the joy of the Holy Spirit is in our lives. We should be filled with the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is joy. This is a joy that the world knows nothing about. You see, the world that the joy, uh, the, the world encourages us to pursue a joy that just simply covers over the real issues. It's at best transient, passing. The purpose of the world's joy is to take off the real issues of life and death. It shields you from having to face up to the fact that one day you're going to have to stand in the presence of a God who is awesome and all-powerful. We live in a pleasure-seeking world where joy is dependent on circumstances. I want to tell you this morning, there is a better joy. There is a joy that comes from knowing God. Jesus wants us to have the full measure of his joy. Peter calls it an inexpressible and glorious joy. It is so amazing, it can't fully be expressed in words. Lloyd-Jones says this of the early church we're reading about. 
What conquered the ancient world was this joy, this gladness, this verve, this indestructible quality in the life of these people, and this is the greatest need in the world today. There's a great example of this in the early church. Paul and Silas are in Philippi. It's just after Paul's disagreement with Barnabas. Paul and Silas have been beaten. They're in prison. Their feet are in the stocks for no reason at all. At midnight, we read they're worshipping God. They're praying. They're singing hymns to God. The other prisoners are listening. They're is an earthquake. Their chains fall off, all the doors are broken down, and they're free to go. Paul and Silas stay worshipping God. The other prisoners, some of them facing all sorts of things in the future, maybe some even facing death, they all stay. They all stay because they are so impacted by the incredible faith and joy that they see in these two guys. They hang around. The jailer comes in and sees the situation, and in that moment, he is so struck by the awe of God that he falls and he says, What do I need to do to be saved? And he gets saved. And we're told at the end of the the story that the Philippian jailer was filled with joy. He saw this joy in these guys, a joy they shouldn't have been expecting. Humanly, it made no sense. He saw something of the power and the presence of God, and he fell on his knees before this God. He encountered God, gave his life to Jesus Christ, and was filled himself with this joy. How amazing is that? You see, the early church, their gladness was not the goal. It was the consequence of something. They were filled with joy because something had happened. It was the consequence of knowing that they were saved for eternity. It was a joy that came out of knowing of what they'd been saved from, knowing that the Son, that Jesus Christ had set them free, knowing that this world was not the end, that they were pilgrims passing through to a better place, a place of perpetual joy in the presence of God. This joy is amazing. It's amazing. But you have to experience it for yourself. You will only do it by coming to Jesus Christ in faith, like the Philippian jailer, falling on your knees before God and saying, God, save me. I don't deserve this. Jesus, I put my trust in what you did for me on the cross. You died in my place. You know, if you you do that, life can be filled with an inexpressible joy. You have to experience it for yourself. The thing that we need to be aware of is that we can lose this joy. We can lose it through legalism. That's trying to earn God's favor by what we do. Tom was talking a lot this morning in the worship about the grace of God. Grace is 
The grace of God is something we don't earn. We receive a free gift from God of life in Christ. We don't earn it. When we try to please God, when we try and earn it by how we live, if we are trying to earn brownie points with God, favor with God by what we do, the Bible calls that legalism. You will never do enough to earn your salvation. You'll never do enough to earn the favor of God. It is a free gift. Paul's challenge to the Galatian believers who are slipping up on this point, he says this, what has happened to all your joy? Worrying will rob you of joy. Stress will steal our joy. Fear will do the same. If we are struggling with these things, we need an encounter with God by His Spirit. This is what the psalmist says. I sought the Lord and He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant. In Isaiah 60 verse 5 it says this, Then you will look and be radiant, your heart will throb and swell with joy. If you've lost your joy, you need an encounter with the living God this morning. You need to be filled again with the Holy Spirit. You need to know this joy. You need to live in this joy. You see, this joy is a joy for all seasons. If we believe God works out everything for our good, the joy of the Lord really will be our strength. We'll be able to say with James, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. I want to tell you that is not a laughing policeman mentality, some crazy mad laughing as if that's trying to cover over the ache you feel inside. When Marie was going through the pain she talked about, it was deep. But she has found the joy of the Lord to be her strength. That's her testimony. doesn't mean that she didn't have tough moments along the way. It's a joy for all seasons. It's a joy that sees only opportunities. In Philippians, this is a, Philippians is a great book about joy. Paul writing to the church in Philippi, he says this, he's writing from prison, he's in chains. Listen to what he says in chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Verse 12 to 14. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Listen to that. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's in chains. As a result, it has been clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word fearlessly. If you read the book of Philippians, you can't help but be struck by the, this letter is filled with joy. He's able to be filled with joy in this because he's seeing an opportunity. He's seeing a bigger picture. He knows that he's just a pilgrim passing through. You see, he knows that this is a joy for now and forever. You see, focusing on the joy that is ours now and will be with us through all eternity helps us live in this life with a healthy perspective. Acts chapter 12 tells a story that reminds us that sometimes this joy is challenging. 
James, one of the apostles, has been executed. Talked about this last week. Peter has been remarkably released from prison. You remember how Peter, the angel, comes and releases Peter, and Peter walks out of the prison, and he goes to where the church are praying. And he turns out, I want you to imagine as he, they eventually open the door and let him in, I want you to imagine the fear of God in the room. We have just been praying for this guy, and he is here. God sent an angel. The fear of God, the awe of God must have filled that room. Imagine the joy that would have filled that room. Amazing. God, you are amazing. I want you to think about John, James's brother. Imagine John's reaction. God, you're awesome. That is amazing. What about my brother? Have you had moments like that? You hear testimony like Marie's and you're sitting there thinking, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I'm experiencing. God, it's not fair. Why do you do it for Marie and not do it for me? I want to tell you that I believe John rejoiced with everyone else. Because I believe he knew that it was, this joy is for now and forever. He knew that his brother was in the presence of God, enjoying God. We need to have a healthy perspective. I'm going to finish with this quote. And then the musicians will come up and we're going to respond to God this morning. A third century man was anticipating death and he wrote these last words to a friend. It's a bad world, an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people are the Christians, and I am one of them. I want to say this morning, you can know this God. God wants you to know him. He wants you to be in awe of him because he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. That is a rightful response of a created being before their creator. God is awesome. The presence of God should cause us to bow down before him and worship him. It should provoke us and stir us in our worship. A fear of God should cause us to want to live differently, not to try and earn anything, but just because God is God and he sees, should cause us to want to live in the light. Whatever's going on, however difficult, God wants us to live in it, the fear of God. But he wants us to know his joy. 
He wants us to know the joy of belonging to him. And you have to experience it for yourself. And if you're sitting there thinking, I don't know what you're talking about, Steve. Well, you can know it this morning. If you give your life to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will fill you with joy. You won't be like the laughing policeman. But you will know a deep joy in your heart, a peace in your soul for this life and the next. Maybe this morning you've lost that joy. You're like the Galatians. Where, what has happened to all your joy? Maybe you feel like a wet rag. Maybe you feel like you've been baptized in vinegar. You this morning, you can know again what it is to be filled with the Spirit. It's a joy for all seasons. It's a joy that sees opportunities. It's a joy now and forever. Maybe you're like the picture I painted. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, it's not me. Those things don't happen to me. And maybe you feel like that. God wants you to know this morning, wants you to, the Bible calls it repentance, turning around in your heart and come to him and say, God, I worship you. Thank you so much for what you did for Marie. God, would you do it for me? And whatever God chooses to do, it doesn't matter because you're on a journey through this life. This world is passing. We're living for a better day, for a better place. We enjoy this life. We live this life to the full. Every moment is an opportunity for grace. But we're living for a better place, a better world.